This is the University of Applied Research and Development's Emergency Response and Risk Management video and podcast. You'll meet world-class leading professionals who share their wisdom, careers, and experiences. Join us on YouTube and all quality podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, and Radio Public. Welcome, everybody, to the University of Applied Research and Development's ERRM podcast. We are delighted to have with us Alex Quintella from North Carolina, who is an emergency <laughs> response specialist for Fannie Mae. Welcome, Alex. Great to see you. Hey, Craig. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I was reading on your LinkedIn profile for the third time just a few minutes ago, and I love what you said in your profile. You said, every, way, every day I wake up thankful and ready to contribute. What a great, great attitude. Yeah, um, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, folks, they get involved in things for the wrong reasons. Um, and I think, uh, you know, money is a driver for sure. Right. And, and we all like to get compensated. But, uh, you know, our, our profession specifically is about people um, and it's, everything we do is about people. Uh, I always like to say that, you know, you have to really be passionate about people to uh, really be impactful or to uh, even be successful in this profession. So, um, you know, I think that for me, that's that's really important. Uh, and so that ties back into that statement. Wonderful. I often hear that from the professionals that we work with in the industry, SMEs, that have helped us build our faculty and build the programs that we have, that really at this stage of right. their career, they're looking to leave a legacy and looking to make an impact and looking <laughs> to make a difference. And that's wonderful. I hear that a lot. It's quite unique to your, your industry, your profession, I believe. It is. Um, you know, especially when you look at... Um, my early beginnings, uh, you know, as even as a EMT and then as a paramedic, uh, you know, again, it, everything was grounded and always uh, helping others, especially in the, in, in the, like their, their toughest moments. Right. I mean, you know, you're going to come in contact with folks a lot of times who are, uh, you know, for them an emergency is contextual. It's not always what everybody makes it to seem this grandiose thing. Um, it could simply be a disruption, uh, to them, which to the average person, they might look at that and say, well, I don't know that that's really going to impact me. But again, it's, it, that just goes to show the disparities between communities, right? And, and that's something that has to be considered as well uh, when, you're, when you're dealing with this. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot that goes into play there. So why don't you tell us about your current role, which is an emergency mm -hmm. preparedness specialist two, I saw the number two mm -hmm. on your title there for Fannie Mae. Tell us about that, your roles, your responsibilities there. So the two is more like an HR classification. <laughs> it's it's kind of, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's all relative. But uh, with the private sector, especially here at Fannie, um, you know, my role with the enterprise is really making sure that our procedures are sound, that our processes are, are squared away, right? Um, you know, using the recent crisis as an example. Uh, one of the things that we were deeply involved with is making sure that our leaders understood that we had the capacity to work remotely 
making strong recommendations, uh, why we wanted to do those things, right? For instance, you know, we didn't have the capacity to do social distancing. You might have read that the offices, um, it's, it's been a big shift here in the States, especially to do open concept. And so what open concept offices means are, if you think back to the traditional style cubicles, they get torn down and everything's supposed to be more collaborative. And that's great for, you know, the environment that you're trying to foster there. However, in this kind of environment right now, it's so counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. um, and then fast forward, uh, there is a, I'm sure you've heard already, there is the, the beginnings of people and the thought coming back to the office, right? What's that going to look like? Mm -hmm. uh, our company right now is in full telework. So really, we're, we're not in any position right now to um, go back because we just we're concerned with the safety of our employees and our contractors and our visitors, right? But at the very least, we have to start thinking about that. So one of the things that I actually had uh, come up with was with the temperature screening protocol, uh, which actually the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control here in America, uh, at the time had not yet issued any guidance. So, you know, we had the opportunity to do some pretty cool um, and uh, intriguing stuff, if you will, here right now. Um, but yeah, that, that's a kind of a, if, if you will, a high level view of what I do. It's, it's a lot of nuts and bolts. It's a lot of moving parts. I think my position is pretty unique because actually I'm a, one of a team of two. So we're a very small group right now, um, you know, and at Fanny, uh, this is still a relatively new thing. Uh, and as you would expect, you know, the folks there are just getting thrown into the fire right now. Mm. Tell us a bit more about that, if you can, about protocols, because mm -hmm. uh, our students involved in our ERM programs will be in different industries. And so they're thinking sure. about, you know, taking responsibility and contributing to developing protocols and the situation and ones that come in the future as well. So you've mentioned temperature and there's no guidelines out there. So mm. How do you go about that process of developing a protocol, huh. communicating it? So I'm happy that you asked that question because I can tell you that um, it's interesting the way the conversation came up. We were we had just come off of what we call the uh, one of our crisis management committee meetings, right? And um, you know I sat down with my with my boss afterwards, my my director, and he said to me, he goes, "Hey, using your background." I want to see if that you can come up with some sort of recommendations. And I, and I said to him, I said, well, listen, this is the problem right now. There's no real guidance out there. I said, and you know, everything we try to, we try to push out there as far as guidance and stuff, we try to vet at the same time. Is there, is there a precedence? Is there a reference point? Is there something that we can look at that says out there, Hey, what's, what's factual scientific? Well, how are we developing this? In other words, I just didn't come up with it, right? Like mm. it's, it's actually proven or backed. The, the problem was that that wasn't there. So I had to go back to my network. And I think that that's, that's, um, you know, not, not to get sidetracked, but that's an important point for anybody out there. This is a time where you can truly go back to those colleagues, those networks, right? A lot of what we do as emergency management professionals is, is cultivate those relationships so that when we have a situation like this, we can then go back and say, okay, let's go back to that network and say, hey, I'm, I'm dealing with this situation. Can you help me? What do you think? And so just so you understand, to contextualize that, 
these folks that I was having these conversations with were EMS chiefs, so emergency medical service chiefs, right? People who were on the ground seeing this stuff in real time. Some of them were published authors who had written in the New England Journal of Medicine and, and you know, and other physicians. And we had hours long conversations and it was very collaborative. And I basically went back with them and came back with this set of standards, this, this protocol, right? But one of the things that I told my leadership was I said, this is a tool. It is not a guarantee because, you know, I'm happy to share that document with you so you can better see what I'm talking about, but kind of to move past the protocols for a moment, one of the, I thought one of the key conversations that I had was with one of my, um, actually, he's my really good friend. We used to work together uh, a long time ago. And he said to me, you know, Alex, when, when all this science fails, everything that you do has to be based in ethics. And I think that that goes back to my, to my previous statement. It has to be for people. You have to do what's right. Um, and I can tell you right now, I think one of the things that we're, we're, we're leaning towards is this protocol is such a heavy lift, just simply because of the logistics involved, right? You're talking about having multiple people line up, a single point access point for employees to filter into the office. And you say to yourself, if you're working effectively right now remotely, is it really worth the risk, mm. right? And I think that that's something else that you have to be mindful of as a professional. It's not just responding, but it's also looking at it from the other standpoint and saying, okay, what's my risk here? Is this worth it, right? And, I, and guiding your, your leaders in that direction. Yeah, that's really powerful. I had written down as my final question, but I want to ask it now because I saw in your profile mm. that you're a member of the um, International Association of Emergency Managers. And I was going to say, what sort of value is there in being in those sorts of organizations? Well, it goes back to my, to my um, you know, just a moment ago that I was mm. talking about that networking, right? I think that that's one of the, the greatest takeaways that I've had from all these conferences and engagements. Um, and, and, and it, I'll tell you, if you're open to it, you can meet as many folks as you want from all different walks. You know, I've, um, as a matter of fact, I met a gentleman uh, at last year's conference who he was uh, emergency manager for a hospital over in Saudi Arabia, but now he finds himself back stateside because, you know, the crisis, He's, he wanted to come back and he accepted a position here. But that um, man has a, a tremendous amount of, of experience in, on the global aspect. Hmm. States, uh, emergency management or emergency response, people who do it just in the United States, um, they have a certain way of thinking about it, right? And I think that in my experience, if you go back to when I was with Cisco, I got exposed to that global level. And the first thing that I learned is, ha, this is a totally different animal. <laughs> and, and you have to think about it different ways and, and consider different things. There's a whole bunch of you know, cultural differences, there's policy differences, there's, you know, laws that are different. Um, but being a part of the conference and being part of the association, you get to talk about that with your fellow colleagues. And again, it goes back to that networking and that circle that you develop, right? But more importantly, it helps you grow as a professional. There's a lot of great content that comes out of these conferences, a lot of shared experiences, uh, opportunities for you to actually present on something that might be important to you. Um, and also, if you're willing to do it on, on, on an extra, because all of this is purely voluntary, if you're willing to do this on an extra step, you can be involved in subcommittees. 
so you know for me i'm I'm involved in the diversity committee essentially what you know kind of just to to get it in a nutshell we look at those things that uh, impact the undeserved the folks who are disproportionately impacted um you know in disasters and emergencies right and and, and we try to push things and 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 make sure that anytime somebody's looking at some kind of legislation or a policy change that that lens is considered um and it's an important one uh because i'll say for me that you know right now with the current crisis you're just seeing folks who were already have a difficult enough time accessing things again i talked about those disruptions right so for instance mom trying to get medication on a regular basis may not be an emergency to somebody, but for her, it certainly is a concern and disruption. Now you tack on COVID to this, and you know those concerns get even more magnified. The, the, again, the association helps because more than anything else, you get that whole uh, as a professional. One of the parts of one of our courses really digs a little bit deeper in exactly what you were saying about the issues of race or ethnicity, um, class, mm -hmm. gender, geographic location, and how they can be dis disproportionately affected in these types of situations. You've mentioned one where there's one issue with trying to get medication, but then you add on all these other layers can make it a life-threatening mm -hmm. issue. What, what are some of those other things which disproportionately affect someone's ability to get through and survive, even at a survival level? Through sure. So I can tell you right now, I did a, uh, actually at, at last year's conference, I, I did a panel discussion about this, which I was a part and, and I presented on it. And one of the things that I did was presented from a responder standpoint. And why that's so important is because the folks on the ground, you know, operationally speaking, are the ones who are going to see these things, not just when the crisis or whatever it is, the incident is evolving or happening. I'm talking about pre-event, right? So regular day life, those folks have that knowledge and they see it within the community. It's a good idea to go back and engage with these people whenever you have that opportunity and talk to them. And you can do that simply again by engaging the higher level folks, the, the people who are high up the food chain, and you can speak to them and say, hey, what are some of the challenges or obstacles that you've seen people in the community specifically, you know, what, what are they encountering? And the reason I bring that up is because a lot of times we talk about preparedness and we roll out these great elaborate messages, right? We'll say, hey, have a kit, make a plan, you know, and, and this has to include 72 hours to 96 hours of food. I can tell you right now, your message is going to fall mute on their ears because when they hear that, that is so daunting to them because the first thing that they're saying to themselves is, I have a difficult enough time preparing for a few hours or a few days. And you're telling me now that I have to do this extended amount of, of preparedness, this this, I, I can't, you know, get all these things together. I have a difficult enough time putting things on the table for my family. I have to make a decision, right? What am I going to do? What am I going to prioritize? These are things that ideally you want to have in your mind when you're trying to come up with a strategy, but also when you're engaging with the community, because it's important that they hear you. And I think a lot of times we're really good at telling people what to do what we need from them, but we don't reciprocate that. We don't listen to them. And I think that that's that part of that engagement, right? I think if emergency managers start to become better at that 
we can start to bridge that gap. Um, and it's, it's about having that, that awareness that has to be built in. I think it's, we're starting to see it come up. I, I, I will say, you know, not to be long-winded, but I was really encouraged by the conference last year where a lot of these, um, these issues came up organically. You didn't have to actually insert them into the conversation or bring them up as a point. It's, it's, it's starting to become more of a focal point. And, th and that for me is certainly encouraging. I just think that we need to continue to, to make sure that we, you, you know, kind of beat that drum, if you will, and act as that champion. Mm. That is challenging, isn't it? Because how do communities or neighborhoods respond to that out of their own resources and out of their own capacity? When I would imagine there are some, for example, geographic hubs of people who are going through those mm -hmm. difficulties. And so how does that particular community respond or prepare when the community is made of those people who actually have that need? So how, how do we prepare? How do we resource that type of um, community? Well, um, let, me, let, let me say this, Craig, about the, about the resources. Something that, I, that, I, that I've been successful with is really, and, and I'll use my, my time in Durham County, okay, as an example. So in, in, in that time that I was there, we would look at what's already out there for us, right? So in other words, faith-based groups, civic groups, people who are already entrenched, well, well, you know, they're very familiar and recognized within the community. Can we go engage them and then say, okay, listen, we're going to, um, this is what we need, right? And, and you tell us what, what, what you've seen. And how can we make it all work? And I think when we started to leverage those trusted partners and, and also more importantly, build, re, you know, um, foster that relationship. Cause a lot of times there's fractured trust there and you'll find that it's just about having a conversation, right? It's just about repairing that. Um, so, so the first point there is just look within Sometimes you're saying to yourself, oh, I, it's, it's such a heavy lift for me to do that. I don't have the resources. But in reality, if you look a little more, you actually might, right? So, so just making sure that. Now, this, I'll, I'll say this. The second part of your question, I kind of lost. It, it broke up a little bit, if you don't mind repeating it. Yeah, it was how, how we pull together, how we help those communities. What can we do to provide for those communities to help them make that lift? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times we're, you know, I, I know here in the States, we focus on uh, putting out the information, trying to mass broadcast that information. And we try to um, push it out very, you know, all these different channels and mediums. I think, I think actually, especially now, we're, we're starting to see that people are a lot more resilient than they get credit for, right? That already kind of is inherent to certain things that they do on a day-to-day -day basis. And we're starting to see that, um, you know, I've, I've recently had some conversations with colleagues and they're saying, wow, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, folks have this built-in resiliency and we're pushing out this message of preparedness. And that's the point that I bring up. If you look around globally, um, I've, I use um, Portugal as an example, because in Portugal, uh, one of the things that I encountered while I was with Cisco is, at our, one of our sites in Lisbon, they had uh, first aid kits for every person and it was required, right? Mm -hmm. Now, some of those uh, approaches 
you know, they get political right away. <laughs> you know, why should I have to provide a kit for every person and, and that kind of strategy? And that's a lot of money. And those are the first talking points. But if you, if you scale it back, if you dial it back a bit, I can actually probably find the numbers for you of how much money we've spent in the States producing all these materials and, and, you know, publishing all these documents and, 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 you know, um, buying time on the media channels. And it's just been a lot of money that has gone in. And, and if I think I saw a recent statistic and don't quote me on this, but the point is we weren't, we, the, the, the value, the return on investment, it was very small, the difference. Yeah. It had gone in, in the right direction, but it's not really that sampling that you'd like to see and saying to yourself, well, are we really better prepared? So I think finding different ways and, and just being open to the not so traditional and things that we've done, paying attention to the past is, is so important. I think, again, you have to be aware really of what the community is, what do they, what do they need? Because not every, not every community is going to be the same either, right? I can go up the street here from, from actually from my residence and you know, that community down there has a lot more concerns with flooding. But I go right where I am and I don't have any of those concerns at all. Mm -hmm. And so I know from volunteering with the fire department here in town, they actually went out and they purchased a boat just for that particular part of the community. And, and that's a good example of what I'm trying to talk about because, you know, they had the mindset of, okay, we may not use this, but <laughs> if the time should ever come, right. we have it. We're ready to go, right? So it's just, again, keeping in mind that not everything is going to fit, you know, one piece of the puzzle. You might have to look for different options. Um, but again, also having that awareness. So how do you see the value of simulations? So, you know, all these different ways mm. that you can prepare. How are you using simulations? <laughs> like using them? So I have an interesting story. There's kind of funny, but um, I'll try to keep it as concise as I can. Um, so <laughs> we were doing a very long time ago, we were doing a full scale exercise. And when, what I mean by full scale exercise is they bring out everybody. So they treat it as if it was a real incident and event. And so the incident or the, the exercise took place on the George Washington Bridge, which connects Fort Lee, New Jersey, and New York City. It's one of the bridges. It's one of the ways that you can get into the city. And the incident involved, uh, or the, I should say the exercise involved, a truck that had flipped over in the middle of the bridge and had basically exploded. Now it was purely, you know, natural. It just, unfortunately it exploded. And I'll tell you that they did it overnight because they were concerned about traffic rush hour in the morning. They didn't want to disrupt that. So they did it overnight. Well, the New York side was a lot more efficient and effective than the New Jersey side, right? But the New Jersey side, um, they basically, when we were done, at the debriefing, they pat each other on the back and they said, great job, guys, great job. One, it wasn't really that great, right? And I think <laughs> the reason that I, that I bring that up is because I've been to so many of them, um, all these simulations and these exercises in my career 
that a lot of times we, we give each other the credit for showing up and we're very positive, but what we don't provide to each other is that candid feedback that we actually would gain more value from and improve upon so that we don't continue to repeat those same mistakes that we see over and over and over again. So the point is, is if you're going to do a simulation, don't be afraid to point out what exists. It's okay to fail because that's what we want to know. We want to see the gaps so that we can get it while we're in a simulation. That's, that should be the whole point. These simulations take a lot of time, a lot of effort, and in some cases they take a lot of money mm. um, to, to produce. I think you're doing a disservice to your colleagues, other professional stakeholders, if you're not treating them as the real thing. Now, I will say this, when they're effective, they're fantastic. A pretty unique experience I had in Durham County, actually, was I took a, <laughs> I took a, a bunch of high school kids and I trained them up in uh, what we called here the incident command system for a few days. I gave them a crash course. I said, here we go, we're gonna do this. And it was, a, uh, those high school kids were a group of just um, emergency medical uh, students that they happened to be taking that portion for the semester. And they came in and they did it and they, they studied it. And then I said, okay, here's your scenario. It's a hurricane, it strikes the coast of North Carolina. This town is at risk of being flooded, go. I didn't tell them anything else, nothing. I, I just wanted to see what would happen. And I can tell you right now, just that's all I was simulating. What are these kids going to do? I said to them, feel free to use open sources, feel free to use the internet, feel free to use Google, but we're going to run it as such. And I have to tell you, I was quite impressed with the outcome. They came back, they identified the populations that were most vulnerable. They were able to evacuate the town. We spent the whole day in the EOC. I, I joke around lockdown. We weren't locked down. Of course, there were breaks and whatnot. But it was, it was actually to the point where the results were so, huh, they were striking, right? And I was able to take this back to our partners and say, you know what? Sometimes the, the most trained eyes get strained and they need to take a step back. Look at what these uh, kids came up with. And uh, we actually used some of those results to actually implement it with the actual state's coastal evacuation plan. So again, when they're effective and you know, they're, they're meaningful, and sometimes it doesn't even take a lot, uh, you can get a lot out of them. And for us, that was important because not even a few months later, Hurricane Matthew struck. <laughs> so it was, it was, yeah, it was quite a time. <laughs> At uh, Fannie Mae, at your current work environment, do you have an incident command center? So we actually are in the process of standing all those things up. They have what's called a security command center, but that's more for physical security operations. They realize the need to integrate everything, right? Um, and I think that uh, you're starting to see a lot more corporations buy into that not just in, in, the, in the States, but, but globally. I think especially the, with the pandemic right now, it's curious because you know, one of my colleagues who's trying to get uh, back, he was a consultant and his contract unfortunately ran out. And so now he finds himself searching for work again. And he said, I am shocked at the amount of corporations that are hiring preparedness you know, specialists, emergency management professionals. And I said, well, yeah, they, they understand the need. Um, for us, we're integrating all that stuff as we speak. We were actually getting ready to roll out what the plan would look like. And then unfortunately, you know, <laughs> the pandemic hit. So we've pushed pause. 
Um, but I think as we start to get back, we're probably going to, to see that ramp up again. And, and it's pretty cool because what they're um, offering is to basically take physical security, intelligence, so real-time intelligence, you would be paying attention to things going on. So you have that situational awareness and then basically be able to connect it virtually as well as what we're doing. We've found that that's really effective. Um, so yeah, I think that's going to be key actually being able to take a physical location and can you decentralize it, especially in these times? I think that's something that we've seen that's important to resiliency. Interesting that you mentioned about the high school students and their, their creative <laughs> problem solving. So my, my PhD is looking at the creative industries and what, what are the character traits or aptitudes that people should have to be successful in the creative industries. Think about your industry and your particular disciplines. What are some of those character traits do you think that people need to have or develop to be successful in an emergency response situation and in career? I think the biggest, the single most important thing for sure is you have to be willing to go out there and collaborate. Um, you cannot be, um, you can't be isolated, right? You can't be um, not willing to go out and say hello and, and start a conversation. That's very important. And I understand that for some it can be difficult because not everybody is, is outgoing or as engaging, but I think that's something that you can through your interactions and it's why it's so critical for, you know, I, I think that this is the, the point where I would go back to developing a very small circle in the beginning, engaging that small circle and, and being open with them and telling them if you do in fact have that barrier, right? And saying, hey, listen, you know, I, I really do want to help. I do want to engage people. I do, I really am passionate about this, but I may not be as outgoing. Can you help me? What are some strategies that you've done? In fact, you'll find that some of them will even introduce you to people that have had that, those issues, right? And I think that those little nuggets can help you. Uh, and, and what you'll find is, is that you'll, you'll knock off a few more things there because that'll also expand that network. Collaborating is, is so important. Um, listening, for sure. You have to have those good communication skills. Uh, you have to be able to, to be, uh, you know, very thoughtful before you kind of dive into something. So the ability to look at something from the lens of the other person or the person impacting uh, them is, is so critically important because a lot of times we have a tendency, especially when, when it's, you know, in a response to just get this tunnel vision or this fog and, and, and look at something very singular minded. Take a step back relax and say to yourself, what is going on here? How can I help this, this situation? You might, come, you might find yourself coming into a situation where you come into a room, like it's happened to me actually right now, where you come into a meeting, you're maybe a minute or two late because you've been on another call. And so you had to disconnect from that one and jump into that one. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, what happened here? Because the next thing you know, there are people having a disagreement even a minute or two in. What are you going to do about that? So it's, it's critically important for you to jump in and say, okay, hold on. Let me take a, a quick listen before I just chime in 
<laughs> because a lot of times these things can, can make us very impassioned, right? Passionate people sometimes want to bring those things out. I think if you have those skills aligned, everything else can be taught or, or even learned, right? Um, but I think those are the things that I would say to you, for me especially, have allowed me to, to excel. It's, 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 it's almost funny because sometimes people ex expect when they ask me that to hear these, well, I took this training or I did this. Those are all nice. But if you lack those very simple skills, you're going to have a very big problem. That's really great. Thank you for that. Hello, just before we wrap up, I did want to ask you something that's a little bit different and I didn't prep you on this. So I hope that's okay. Okay. Just wanted to get your perspective on the role of technology going forward and maybe some interesting technology mm. advancements you've seen in the industry now. Yeah, and that's, I'll, I'll tell you that it's, it's, there's some really cool stuff going on out there. Um, I think one of the things that's, and we talked about how you decentralize meeting points, EOCs. I think what we're doing right now is, is really, it's so funny because at Cisco, we were already doing this because our team was remote, right? But Cisco is a technology company. <laughs> so, you know, platforms, um, you know, like uh, video conferencing, those are going to be probably ultra important moving forward. I think as we move into a, an environment where it's possible for people to be more remote, that's going to be something that you're going to see that emergence of collaborative tools, you know, are they going to come up with more crisis management stuff? I know Microsoft Teams, not to give them a plug, but I know that um, what I'll talk about specifically with them is, is that one of the platforms that we're leveraging right now is a power app that was built specifically for crisis. So the, uh, the IT team, when they gave us this demo on, on the, uh, that specific app, they said to us, hey, we want you to know that this was developed specifically for crisis. Microsoft then gave it to us and said, do what you want with it. And we built it out so that you could specifically use it for this incident. And it actually worked really seamlessly. So one of the things that I loved was when we got done with the conversation, specifically about, let's say we were talking about repopulation of the building, right? And we were talking about when we first started our conversation, the files could live for that conversation on the one section of this board. And we could all come into it collaboratively and change it, right? So the ability for you to collaborate seamlessly and make changes in real time and then see that, this goes back to that, um, you may have heard the acronym common operating picture, everybody on the same page, real time, looking at the same thing. So I think those are going to be ultra important, but I also look at the other technologies such as, do we have the opportunity to do, you know, physical security, such as right now when you have a limited amount of folks in the building because everybody's remote for the most part, can you do some of those things with drones? Uh, the touchless environment moving forward, we're actually looking actively at, you know, badge readers that are totally just touchless. In other words, you would take your mobile device, bring it up to the card reader, and as you're approaching, oh, this is an employee, the door automatically opens. So these are the kind of things that are evolving. I think, um, you know, as, as responders and, and as emergency management professionals, 
We also have to be mindful when it comes to technology of convergences of technology. Because I think that that's, that's the other side of this. What are the risks? And I always like to play devil's advocate when it comes to that. Because I will tell you, I went to a really great presentation at the conference. And one of those talked about how the convergence of technologies is also something that we should consider. There was a, um, the National Security Administration here in the States has a satellite that until recently uh, was very classified, but they did a documentary on it and he, he talked about it. Uh, and so Argus takes all these different camera angles and puts them into one. But the thing that's unique about it is how it can track multiple frames at the same time within the same frame. It was really shocking. And how they can accomplish that is because they can tap into your cell phone's camera. They can tap into your computer's camera. I don't bring this up to play, you know, scare anybody. The point of this is we need to be aware of it because just as we can leverage technology to improve what we do, it can also shoot us in the foot, right? So we have to make sure that we have systems that are redundant and that we have the capacity so that when technology fails, we should be also be able to do things manually. There is a risk with technology that improves what we do. And I think we also have to just be mindful of, as we become more dependent, we cannot just stay you know, grounded in technology. We also have to be nimble and agile. Right. And that'd be part of being prepared, right? Having multiple ways to... That's right. <laughs> Alex Quintella, I really want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your wisdom and being such a willing... You're welcome, person. Craig. Thank you so much for, for being on our podcast and um, sharing your knowledge with the students. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. And if there's one parting piece of wisdom you'd like to say before we go, what would you say to someone who wants to get into, into the industry? Would you say, whoa, hold back? Or what would you say? <laughs> No, I'd say, you know what, welcome. Uh, we need fresh blood and fresh eyes that are energized. Uh, just always remember, it's, it's not what happens. It's, it's, it's how you react. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Have a great day. All right. Thanks, Craig. You too.